have your Bibles this morning, we're going to be in Romans chapter 4. Um, Romans chapter 4, and uh, we're going to take kind of the whole chapter today. It's one big story. It's a pretty amazing uh, story as, uh, as Paul lays it out here. If you don't have a Bible, there's some um, on the sides of the booth back there. Feel free to go grab one of those. Uh, if you have one of those Bibles in particular, we're on page 941 is where we're going to be. It's the same translation that I'll be reading from here. As we've uh, walked through these verses together, these couple of chapters here in the heart um, of Romans, we've been talking about the heart of the gospel because um, it's important for us as we kind of think about what Easter, uh, it's just around the corner and what it means, uh, the heart of the gospel is a great thing to concentrate on. Uh, There's probably no denser um, collection of of, uh, thoughts and arguments um, in the New Testament than these particular chapters right here as to understanding what the gospel is. And so we've been working and working and working on this. Um, and uh, the, the essence of it is this, that God has done for us what we could not have ever done for ourselves. It, through the gospel, the heart of it is this, that God has done for us th- uh, that which we could never do for ourselves. So in Romans chapters 1 and 2, Paul talks about how sinful we all are, what great news, what a great way to start out um, the letter. That's what he starts with, though. Hey, listen, we're all in pretty bad shape. Uh, Chapter 3, Paul turns the corner and begins to argue, uh, but God has provided a remedy for us. So he has done for us what we never could have done for ourselves. And then here in chapter 4, we get this idea, excuse me, this example of Abraham. And um, the the message of the day is is this, and you're going to hear this a lot uh, today, that Abraham was justified by faith alone. It is so important that we just drill that into our heads over and over and over again. He was justified by faith alone. Justified is a big Bible word, essentially meaning this, that he was made right with a righteous God. Abraham was made right with a righteous God. How? By faith alone. And so here's where we're going to, uh, here's where we're going to pick it up in chapter four. Look at verse one. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? Paul was a Jew, and so he's talking about this. For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. So if Abraham had done uh, right before God, if he had had, uh, made himself right with this righteous God uh, because of the things that he had done, he could just, you know, cry, here I am, I'm Abraham, Um, show the big A on the inside, and um, off he goes. But he's not, that's what he said. He has something to boast about, but not before God. If that was true of Abraham, it wasn't true before God, but it wasn't true. Look at verse 3. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Um, so let's just pause here. There's kind of four big statements, and then we want to make just an application or two uh, as, as we work our way through. Uh, the first big statement is this. Um, Abraham was made right with the righteous God by faith alone and not by works. It is so important that we drill this down by faith alone, not by works. That's what he's talking about in verses 2 and 3. If Abraham was justified by works, he's got something to boast about, but not before God. But why? Because what does the scripture say? Abraham didn't work before God. He believed God. He believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. If you and I try to make ourselves right with a righteous God by works, what we are doing is earning And faith and grace and all the good things that God has done for us is opposite of earning. You're on the other side of the fence. You're in a different zip code completely um, when it comes to uh, life in the kingdom. Justification by works is earning. Here's the question that, that undergirds that. If you and I try to make ourselves right with this righteous God, if we try to justify ourselves by our works, 
try to earn our way into his favor. Here's the question. Do you really think, do you really think uh, that you can in some way put God in debt to you by the things that you do? Where God would look go, golly, I got a bill from Trent. I mean, look at him, what all this. Oh, I probably need to pay this sucker off, don't I? Yeah. Do you really think that by your works, you're somehow going to put God in debt to you? And this is the argument that he's making here. Justification by works is earning. So I'll just uh, try to briefly illustrate this for you. Um, uh, <laughs> one day, um, it was me and our, our second one in the car, and we're driving uh, to piano lessons. And uh, somehow we got to talking about a movie. And um, we, I quoted a line from the movie, and he says to me, Dad, that's not how it goes. It went like this. And I'm like, no, it didn't. Yeah, it did. No, it didn't. Yeah, it did. And you know where this goes, right? So I bet you, I bet you that's what it was. I bet you not. What are we going to bet? We're going to bet 15 push-ups when we get to piano lessons. Well, all right then. I'm good for that. 15 push-ups. Luckily, we had the movie in the car. I drop it in the little thing, and out comes the audio. And guess who was right? Not me. I wasn't right. <laughs> so we get to piano lessons. I say, hey, before you go in, put it in park. Get there. He's, of course, over there talking smack. You didn't go down far enough. You know, that kind of stuff. So, and it's funny when it's between me and my 10 or 11-year-old. It, it's not so funny. In fact, it's spiritually hazardous when we think that somehow, some way, our works, hey, God, I'll, ta- I'll place a bet here. I'll place a bet. I'll, I'll, I'll bet 15 push-ups, God, that I'm right and you're wrong on this deal. How does that always end up, church family? It always ends up where we're the ones who lose. We think that somehow we can put God in our debt. It's not how this goes. Justification by works is earning. And earning, this is an important thing, earning as an attitude towards God always puts us opposite of what he wants to do. Instead, excuse me, let's just pause here and highlight this from verse 4. Now, to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. In other words, if you worked, this is what you would be owed. Uh, In this case, you can never be owed what, I mean, you, you can never earn what what would actually be good. You could never earn what would actually be good. Instead, instead of justification by works, Abraham was justified by faith. He was made right with the righteous God by faith, and justification by faith is grace. Look at verse 5. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly. Now, let's just pause. How dare he call Abraham ungodly? Oh, he gets it, though. Everybody's locked up under sin. Everybody's under the power of sin. So even Abraham here, and to the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing um, of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. He's quoting Psalm 32. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. You'll notice he's used the word count or counted a bunch of times here. Eleven times in this chapter he actually uses this. The whole idea is this. That there's a ledger, if you will, and we're definitely in the red. I mean, like, we're in bad shape. The debt that we owe God is so catastrophic and so uh, uh, enormous that there's no way that we could ever pay our way out of it. No way we could ever earn our way out of it. No way that we could ever deserve or merit our way out of it. And instead, God, because of Jesus and what he's done, and then when we put our faith in Jesus, God looks at that ledger and says, Jesus paid that debt, just like we sang a while ago, but didn't just stop there. 
he not only paid the debt, but he purchased um, favor with God for us so that you and I don't have to be awkward around God. We can step into a relationship with God and relate to him as he intends as our father. So this would be something like this, going back to our little push-up encounter. We realize fully that we lost the debt. I mean, we lost the bet, right? And we're getting ready on the ground, get ready to go at it. Uh, and and if, if he, Sam, would have just walked around the corner and said, ah, Dad, I know that I won. Don't worry about it. I would have gladly gotten up. I don't want to get my clothes dirty anyway. Thank you so much. But there would still be some, like, push-up debt to the universe, right? I mean, because I lost a bet, and, and push-ups were not done. So it wouldn't just be Sam saying, don't worry about it, Dad. It would be him coming around the corner saying, don't worry about it, Dad, and he himself dropping to do the 15 push-ups. You see that? That's how that goes. That's what grace is. It's not just that he uh, was willing to pay our debt. It's that he was also uh, de deal with the debt that we had there. It was also he was willing to pay it, and then he was willing to purchase favor uh, with God for us. That's what he has talked about all throughout chapter 3. He, as our propitiation, pays our debt and then purchases favor. Therefore, we are made right with God. We are counted as right. The ledger is then tipped in our favor. Why? Because of us? No, because of Jesus. By faith in Jesus alone, not by works. Not by works. Continuing on, look in verse 9. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? So Paul's question is, is it just for those who were Jewish and, and uh, had received uh, uh, the, you know, the, this, this uh, uh, mark of circumcision. Uh, for we say, look in verse 9, for we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that the righteousness, so the righteousness would be counted to them as well and to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised but also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. And you're thinking to yourself, I have never heard somebody say circumcised so many times. <laughs> it's, yes, that is true. That is 100% true. Here's what you don't want to miss in this story of Abraham. He was justified by faith alone, not by works. And get this, he was justified, justified by faith alone and not by circumcision. And this is the argument that Paul is making here. Um, the argument goes something like this. Abraham was counted righteous before he was circumcised. In other words, Genesis 15 happened before Genesis 17. Now, in every book that I know, 15 comes before 17. You with me on this? So in Genesis 15, God makes Abraham a promise. And he says, hey, listen, I'm going to make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as numerous as the sand on the seashore. And Abraham looked at himself and he looked at his wife and he looked at God and was like, okay. I believe you. And it was in that moment right there that Abraham, because he was looking forward to the promise of God, that Abraham was counted righteous. He was declared righteous in the sight of God. Um, 
it was in Genesis, that was in Genesis 15. In Genesis 17, then, um, you have this uh, uh, explanation, or excuse me, this uh, uh, furtherance of the covenant, this sign of the covenant that says, um, then, Abraham, you need to be circumcised and do this for all the kids and all this kind of stuff. So the, the, the sign of the covenant came later. It came afterwards, okay? So uh, the, the application, then, is, is what you don't want to miss here. Look at verse 11 and 12. Again, this is a, it's a wordy way of arguing, but don't miss it. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. This is what he's saying. So um, righteousness came before the sign. In other words, uh, the, the covenant was initiated and Abraham was declared righteous before he received the sign of the covenant. The purpose, there, here it is, the purpose was to make him the father of how many who believe? All, all who believe. All who believe without being circumcised so that the righteousness would be counted to them as well and to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised, meaning not just ethnic Jews, but also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. The application is this is for everybody. Everybody, we made this point last week, we're making it again now. Everybody relates to God the exact same way. That is by faith. Anybody who is made right with a righteous God is made right with that God by faith in Jesus. This is for everyone, not just for Jews. Now, here's the flip. Uh, some of you are thinking right now, this is maybe the weirdest sermon I've heard, and uh, he keeps saying that word over and over again. It's strange. Surely, nobody actually thinks like that anymore, or argues like that anymore, that a religious rite or religious ritual is a basis for relating to God. Nobody thinks like that anymore, right? So I, a couple of Sundays ago, got on a plane, um, did some graduate work in Chicago. I'm sitting down uh, at Hobby, um, jumping on Southwest, the company jet, you know, to get up to uh, Chicago. And so I'm sitting there. Uh, if you know how Southwest works, you get your boarding number, you stand in line, you go get whatever seat you want to. So I go get a reasonably good seat. Um, I sit down, uh, it's me, uh, empty seat, guy on the window there, we're fine, all is well in the world. Uh, I mean, we are just, just ready for pushback. And on comes an older lady who is obviously flustered. She comes on and she's like, she bops a couple people in the head with purse as she's getting down the aisle and um, all this kind of stuff. And she looks at the flight attendant and says, where's my seat? Where's my seat? Ma'am, the flight is completely full. Any seat that you see open is your seat. She looks down at me, looks at the empty seat, goes, Ma'am, I paid extra so that I could get a blankety-blank good seat, and she then doesn't turn the air blue. She turns it navy. I mean, she went full off on this poor flight attendant. I can't believe, and my plane was late, and I had to run across the thing, and da 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 and I'm 20 minutes, blank, 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 beep, 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 beep. The sensor was having a great time with that, and I'm just sitting here watching it. That guy's got his headphones in, and I'm just looking going, oh, this is going to happen. She goes, I guess I'll just sit right there. So I stand up, walk about eight rows back. Yes, ma'am, please go right ahead. Just have a seat right there. And then she looks at the flight attendant and says, uh, I'll have two vodkas on ice, please. And I said, yes, yes, please do. Actually, that'd be great. Thank you. That would be great. Please go ahead. Start drinking now. Um, we got up in the air. Her life 
settled down a little bit, um, aided by uh, the cocktails that she ordered, and uh, she was fine. And then she, she became that person on the flight. She started talking a lot. I mean, just telling me about her life. You're going home. I'm going to school. How about you? I'm going home. I'm from Chicago. We blah, 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 blah. And she goes through this whole thing. Retired English teacher. What would you like to teach? I like to teach this, not that. I like this, not that. Uh, you know, blah, 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 blah. And finally, the question came. So what do you do for a living? I'm a professional talker to people on airlines, lady. That's what I do. (laughs) I said, I'm a pastor of a church. And I don't mean five seconds later. I mean 1.5 seconds later. She goes, oh, I was baptized as a Catholic as a baby. (laughs) The snarky part of me was something along the lines of, did it take, lady? I really need to know. (laughs) But I didn't say that. I didn't say that. We had a great conversation. We ended on very friendly terms, all of that kind of stuff. And here's the thing. I'm not down in Catholics or Presbyterians or Methodists or anybody else. There are all sorts of people who want to use a religious ritual to say that they are right before God. That religious ritual is the basis by which they are right before God. In Baptist life, we talk about walking an aisle, signing a card, maybe even having being baptized up here, that kind of thing. It doesn't mean that you're right before God. Please don't miss this. Man, I am all for seeing people be baptized. We're going to baptize a couple people, I think, in a couple of weeks here. And I think when that happens, man, the church ought to just go absolute crazy. But here's the thing. Don't miss this. The sign of the covenant is not the heart and soul of the covenant. The external expression of the covenant, be it circumcision or baptism or walking an aisle or whatever it may be, that is is the sign of the covenant. It is not the heart and soul of it. What is the heart and soul of it? That a person stands right before God, not on the basis of what they've done or what was done to them or anything. The person stands right before God because they put their trust in Jesus Christ and him alone, and they are then justified by faith alone. That's it. That's it. By faith alone, not by circumcision, not by religious rite, not by ritual. By faith alone. He continues on, verse 13. For for the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. Let's pause right here because we've said Abraham was justified by faith alone. He was not justified by works. Abraham was justified by faith alone, not by circumcision. And now Abraham was justified by faith alone, not by the law. Not by the law. Let me just give you a brief picture of this. Uh, sometime this week, as we were spring breaking and happened to go in, and I had to run upstairs and get a dress for um, our, our littlest one. I walk into a room, flip the light switch uh, on the closet to make sure that I could see, um, and the light doesn't come on. So inevitably, what do I do in that moment? You flip it again because you want to make sure that you, you know, and you're standing there looking like a dummy. Flip, 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 flip. Why isn't it coming on? Flip, 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 flip. It wasn't coming on because the bulbs were burned out. There was a short circuit. I was asking it to do something that it was impossible to do. So with the law. <clears throat> there is something broken in us. 
And so when we go flip, 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 all we're standing there doing is looking silly because there's something broken in us. And so we will never be made right by the law. So those who depend on the law, those who are counting on the law to make them right before God, here's what they miss. They're standing there flipping the switch, but here's what they miss. Verse 13, the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world. Wouldn't that be cool to have on a business card? Just, I mean, just by the way, that'd be awesome. Heir of the world. Uh, did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. Here he's making a chronological argument again. Who came first, Abraham or Moses? Abraham did. So that about 430 years later, give or take, the law came. So those who are counting on the law miss that Abraham was declared righteous. He was made right uh, by believing the promise. All of that happened way before the law came. Abraham, uh, uh, the promise came to Abraham before the law came. Secondly, verse 14 and 15. For it is, excuse me, if it is the adherents of the faith, excuse me, adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, then faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. So here's what he's saying. Um, <clears throat> when it comes to those who are trying to uh, obey the law, those who are counting on the law uh, in order to uh, uh, be made right before God, what they're not, what they're not seeing, what they're not figuring out, what, what's really important for them to understand is uh, what they're doing is nullifying faith and nullifying the promise. Because God said, hey, there's only one way to be made right with God. He says to Abraham, there's only one way to be made right with me. And Abraham and his crew, they were looking forward to the fulfillment of the promise. You and I were looking backward to the fulfillment of of, of the promise. We're both looking at the same promise that God is going to bring someone who's going to deliver us from our sins and set us free to live with him forever. Abraham's looking forward, we're looking backwards. But that's not all. Not only do, um, uh, uh, you know, or are we trying to nullify faith in the promise when we, when we are depending on the law or counting on the law? Uh, but we're also, we don't realize, we miss the fact that the, it's the law that reveals our sin. So verse 15, the law brings wrath, but where there's no law, there's no transgression. Paul uses a very specific word there, and this is the word that he uses. I know what is right to do, and I still choose to do something else. That's transgression. And he said everybody's guilty of that. Everybody knows what's right to do and still and still choose to do otherwise. Furthermore, those who are counting on the law miss the fact that the promise to Abraham was for everybody. He keeps repeating this, verse 16. That is why it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all of his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, that's the Jews, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who's the father of us all, as it is written, I've made you the father of many nations in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. Those who count on the law miss the fact that the promise was to Abraham and it was for everyone, not just for Jewish folks, not just for folks who are religious, but instead it was for everyone. When he says to Abraham, Abraham, I'm going to make you a great nation, and specifically, I'm going to bring a deliverer, I'm going to bring the Messiah, Abraham's looking forward to that. It's not just for a few, it's for everybody who looks forward, backward. It's for everybody who looks and says, yes, I believe that God is going to do that. It's, the promise was made for everybody. And lastly, 
Abraham was justified. He was made right with a righteous God by faith alone, not by works. He was uh, justified by faith alone, not by circumcision. He was made right with a righteous God, not by faith alone, not by the law. And lastly, not by sight. Verse 18, in hope, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many, um, excuse me, that he should become, become the father of many nations as he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. Just quickly here. When we talk about faith alone, not by sight, we are believing that God is going to justify us by faith alone, not by the circumstances that we see. Because there are things that we see in our lives, things that we struggle with in our lives, things that we wrestle with in our lives, things that we work against and fight against in our lives that appear very, very real. Here's the thing, though. Please get this. Um, God's promises are truer than any circumstance you're in. What does that mean? When, when God says, this is what's going to happen, when God says, this is how I'm going to do this, when God says, I promise you, I am going to do this and not that, when God says, I promise you, if you believe, this will be true, some of you think to yourselves, oh, there's no way that that could actually be true for me because of the circumstances that I'm in. God's promises are truer than our circumstances. They are. For Abraham here, uh, again, in hope against hope, it says he believed. Why? Because he had been told, this is what's going to happen, so shall your offspring be. Verse 19, he didn't weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. Think about that. I mean, he's 100 years old, give or take. Sarah's old. I mean, old and barren. So what, what do you do? Abraham goes, hey, God. You can do it. I believe your promises are truer than the circumstances that I'm in. Some of you are here this morning. You're like, boy, the baggage I'm carrying to church this morning. I don't know. The circumstances I'm looking at. God's promises are truer than that. I don't know if God could actually forgive me in light of all the things that I've done. God's promises are truer than whatever the things that you've done. I don't know that God could take away and deal with my shame in light of all the things that, that, that you know, I've been a part of and the things that I'm experiencing and the, the shame that I'm feeling right now. God's promises are truer than the things that you're feeling, than the circumstances that you're in. It's truer than all of those things. If he can do it for Abraham, you know who else he can do it for? Don't miss this last part. He can also, God can also, and he does, he grows in perfect faith. Look at verse 20. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, meaning Abraham did have some unbelief. There were some parts where he struggled. But he grew strong in his faith, and he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That's why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. Um, did Abraham struggle? Yes, Did he struggle at times to really believe? Yes. But did he grow in his faith? Yes. Yes, he did. And God can take your faith, as small as it may be, as struggling as it may be, the ups, the downs, the the ins and the outs, all the struggles that you have, and he can take that and he can help you grow. And and from that little seedling, from that little uh, um, small thing, God, my faith is so small. God's like, I can work with that. He's done it before and do it again. Abraham was justified by faith alone, not by sight. And so 
God gives us Abraham um, as an example. Look at verse 23. But the, the words, it was counted to him, they were written not for his sake alone, but for ours also. So you and I, we've got an opportunity to learn from Abraham here. And what are we going to learn? We are going to learn that if Abraham was justified by faith, you know who else is going to be made right with a righteous God by faith? We are. That's why he says, it will be counted at the middle of verse 24. Not only was it counted to Abraham as righteousness, it will be counted whom? to whom? To us who believe in him who raised uh, from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses, meaning Jesus paid for our sins. You and I are going to be made right with the righteous God. How? By faith alone. Why is that? Because Jesus was delivered up for our trespasses. But it wasn't just a payment that was made. It wasn't just a declaration that was made. He also, it says, he was raised because of our justification. He paid for our sins, yes, and he was raised for our justification. God didn't leave us justified but dead. He also raised Jesus from the dead so that we could be raised with him. So here's here's where we uh, just want to get real practical here. Just in like one or two, these two questions really. Anybody ever struggle with security in their Christian life? Like, God, do you, are we really okay? We all right? If you want security in your Christian life, this is, this is the doctrine to which you should flee often. You should run to this and just wrap your arms around it. This whole idea of justification by faith alone. If you want security, listen, there is no other doctrine. This doctrine of justification sets you free to be secure without being arrogant. You know that all these things where I'm standing, God, you've said these things about me, you've spoken these things to me, uh, you've promised these things to me, you've done these things for me, and I have merited absolutely nothing of it. So if you did that freely for me, how dare I think that I could somehow steal it away from you? And you know what that does? Because I've merited none of it, because you've merited none of it, it sets us free to be humble. I've done nothing, God, to earn this. Therefore, I I get the weight of this, and I'm going to let humility be the thing that marks my life, and then that humility spreads in the other relationships of our life. If you want security in your Christian life, run to this doctrine of justification by faith alone. And secondly, if you want satisfaction in your life, in your spiritual life, this is the place, this is the root from which satisfaction grows. Why? Because the doctrine of justification sets you free to strive for holiness and the good life that God has for you without this kind of suffocating sense of anxiety. God, am I doing it right? Am I good enough? Am I okay? Is this all right? You just, ugh. And God says, hey, I've already said one time for all time, you're right before me. Well, there doesn't have to be that awkwardness. You now can set free to live. Jesus didn't die on a cross and rise from the dead uh, so that you could walk around with your shoulders tense. He instead died to pay for our sins, rose to give us a life that lasts into eternity, a life that is full of satisfaction. Just one more spin of the diamond here, just one more facet of this. Let me ask you a question. You know anybody in your world 
who would be attracted to somebody who is secure before God and satisfied in their relationship to God? I mean, would that make a difference in anybody's life if they saw that you were secure and satisfied in God? Yes, it would. That it's the basis by which ministry then can begin to happen. If I'm secure before God and satisfied in him, then I can minister freely. I can give of myself freely. I can be generous with my time and money and uh, efforts and all of these other things. I can be uh, loving. I can let forgiveness flow. I can uh, let go of the anger and frustration that is sometimes, uh, you know, a part of our uh, uh, relationships. I can um, release myself um, from all those kind of burdens and instead just live as God intended me to live. Secure before him and satisfied in him. And folks... That is magnetic to a world that lacks security and lacks satisfaction. So I'm going to pray. I'm going to ask God to help us root ourselves in this doctrine so that we can be those kind of people. And then we'll have a moment to respond, okay?